Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Brian Brinkman, the VP of Product at Logi Analytics. So as you might guess, we talked a lot about analytics, specifically embedded analytics. Brian believes that analytics shouldn't be an afterthought for product managers. It shouldn't be in a separate area and definitely not just behind you know, that export button we all seem to have or have seen. Instead, it should be woven into your product. So this got me to thinking, how often do we understand the importance of analytics as product managers? And not from the standpoint of you know, the analytics we look at, but the analytics our customers would see. Are we giving it the right amount of attention? How does analytics fit in with our user experience? And I'm not just talking about embedded analytics, but analytics in general. And are we thinking about things in the context of what our end users are facing, what they're doing, what they're trying to accomplish? Well, let me know what you think and how you're dealing with analytics or how you integrate analytics into your product. Tweet me at eBodak or at eBodak at pendo.io. And remember to subscribe on iTunes to Product Love and leave us a review. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today, I have Brian Brinkman with me in lovely Washington, D.C. Brian is the Vice President of Product at Logi Analytic. Brian, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So why don't we kick this off with a little overview of your background? Sure. Boy, I've been, I've been at this a long time. I think I got my first interest in product uh, coming out of school. I worked for in the energy industry, and we created... I was specifically responsible for creating control systems for power plants and much more interestingly, environmental cleanup equipment. I got my first taste of working in product when I was required to design screens for the control systems, which is very interesting because at the time it was a lot of mechanical switches, lights, buttons, knobs, things you might see out of a, a movie from the 60s or 70s. There wasn't a lot of progression even some 20 or 30 years later. Vacuum tubes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, chart recorders, paper, pen, ink. It was pretty, it was more sophisticated than I think people realized because there were fairly sophisticated computer systems that were redundant in very nasty conditions that had to work and operate. And as I sometimes tell people in the power industry, if it doesn't go well, it explodes, which it does. So a lot of safety and a lot of tight tolerances. So it was interesting. As I look back in hindsight, it was interesting. But as I think about some of my experiences, the ones I enjoyed the most was when I was helping design kind of the human-computer interaction to actually control the thing versus a lot of the you know nuts and bolts electrical engineering that we also had to do as part of the, part of the process. So I started there, and I think that's where I got my, kind of got the software bug a bit. And a lot of the programming was, of course, all software. And wanted to do something, this was some years ago, as the software industry was starting to take off, decided the best course was to round myself out and went back to business school at Kellogg Northwestern. And coming out of that training, there were a lot of typical opportunities, you know, investment banking, management consulting, all of which are very interesting. And this would have been the late 90s, and I decided that software was a far more interesting way to go. And what I really wanted to do is figure out how to create interesting software products you know, to help people solve problems. And then 
I got started uh, with an analytics company. It was a business intelligence company, not well known at the time, called MicroStrategy, and spent 14 years there in consulting and product management and product marketing roles as we rolled out a lot of products. And after I got my feet wet, which I think was very much the right thing to do, where I actually was doing implementations with customers, big name customers, Nike, Franklin Templeton, to name a few, I was on the West Coast. I had appreciation for the, the struggles and the real challenges of working with data and presenting it in a way people can understand and use. So I came back and to headquarters to really work on the product management side because like all good consultants, when they're out there in the field working with things, they decided they could make it better. <laughs> I was one of them. And that was a fairly natural progression into product management, which is getting practitioners with experience and working with customers to understand your requirements and market requirements. So I found my way back to MicroStrategy and in that decade or so in product management and marketing, really my job was launching new products. So any new products, you know, an, an email product or discovery product, anything that was new that was coming down the pipe as opposed to the core products was really my purview and responsibility. And that turned out to be very interesting. I learned it's very hard to launch products. I learned the products do not sell themselves. I learned that it's hard for your channels, whether that's your direct channel, your partners, or, or even direct to consumers, it's hard to educate them. It takes time and investment and commitment. That was a lot of good learning kind of in the real world on how to get things into the market and get them adopted and what normal adoption timeframes for certain industries and certain types of solutions take. So it was, uh, it was actually super interesting. We did a lot of great things at that time that you know, I think still very proud of. And then about six years ago, I moved to Logi Analytics to head up their product group, strategy, product management, product marketing, really in, in less of a enterprise role and more of an, what we call embedded analytics. So helping other software companies put analytics into their products to help them. And that's where I've been since. And it's been a very interesting ride. The, the embedded analytics world is a little different than the business intelligence world, where there's a tremendous amount of overlap because the focus on what we do and who we're talking to is very different. So you've done a lot in, in product marketing and product management. Let's talk a little bit about how you define the differences in that role. Because I, I talked to a lot of product leaders and marketing people, and there's often blurry lines in product management and product marketing. How do you set it up and how do you structure those organizations differently? Yeah, at the broadest brush, what I think about is inbound versus outbound. And so when I think about inbound, I tend to think more product management, which means if I'm looking at the market and if I'm looking at customer requirements, which sometimes are different than the market requirements to be clear, and I'm figuring out what are the problems out there that need to be solved and how can we solve them and how does that translate into product capabilities, that's what I think of as more as a product management function. When I think about outbound, which is how do we go to market, what do we say about the product, how do we position the product? How do we educate people on the product? How do we enable our internal organizations, largely sales, sales engineering, customer support? What does everything need to be done around the product as we take it to market to be successful? I tend to think of that more as product marketing. And that may manifest itself in thought leadership pieces, content, demonstrations. But that's, that's my highest level way of thinking about it. There is a lot of overlap. The two often work together. Depending on your size of your organization, your product manager might be doing both functions. But as you start to get 
as organizations start to get a little bit larger, you start to see those functions separate out and specialize a little bit. And I think that's pretty typical, largely because it's hard to find individuals that are great product managers, great product marketers, and frankly, great product strategists all rolled into one. You can usually find one. Sometimes you can find two. You can rarely find three. All capabilities. But that's the broadest, that's the broadest way I describe it. And they're both absolutely critical. You can build the greatest product that never, ever gets sold or adopted. And so the one without the other, I think, uh, just ultimately won't work. And where do you put pricing? We put pricing in product marketing. The reason being is the product marketing team is closer to the sales team. And frankly, the sales team tends to have a lot of on the street information and knowledge that is used uh, in the models we, we build typically for product pricing. And we never cut the product managers out of that equation, but product marketing leads the effort. Okay. So talk to me a little bit more about micro strategies. You mentioned launching new products is hard. Mm-hmm. Let's delve into that a little bit. What's, what's hard about launching new products? Isn't it just a matter of putting up a web page? <laughs> that you you should do that. <laughs> I absolutely think you should do that. Oh, I forgot the buy now button. Yeah, yeah, the buy now button. Right. Uh, so to characterize MicroStrategy, MicroStrategy is an enterprise software company. Their primary target was and is, I believe, still large enterprises, IT departments that are required to buy tools to service their end users. Those end users come in lots of flavors. They could be kind of basic consumers, but they tend to be more analysts or power users, people who are sophisticated with their business, how their data describes their business and how to work with it. MicroStrategy and frankly, every organization is made up of people and people aren't computers. And there's organizations that are required to articulate the value of that information, you know, the value of your product to other people. We call that selling and marketing, right? And it takes a while to get the organization to understand the new offering, to understand the value of the new offering and how it can solve problems for uh, potential customers or existing customers. And when you launch a new product, it's not core to the base. And so Typically, most organizations are oriented around solving that first core problem and then adding additional capabilities to help make the uh, offering richer to solve a wider range of problems. So the first challenge you overcome is you launch a bunch of, you launch a number of new products that are very valuable, but you don't lead with those products, right? You lead kind of with your core. Or if your team's sophisticated enough, you can figure out, and the products are not always uh complementary, you might be able to lead to a different problem. But the first problem that goes back to the base problem is you have an organization of salespeople and marketers, and they understand the core. And when they go in, that's what they own first. And then you need to train them. You need to understand what the product is. You need to give them all the materials they need. It could be collateral. It could be white papers. It could be demonstrations, websites, all the above, so people can find it. And then help them identify and qualify customers' problems so that these solutions will help. That all takes time. It's certainly I'm guilty of it. You know, if I think I could put together a half day training session and demos and great demo scripts and send it out to people and in two to three hours, it's all over. It just never works that way. It requires reinforcement. It requires training. 
continual training, continual education for the channels, not just your direct sales force, but your indirect sales force to really get the message through. Then they got to try it. They got to see where it works. They're going to feed information back to the product teams. They're going to tell you that, you know, your positioning is wrong. These are the wrong problems in the market. Uh, you're going to adjust. That whole process takes time. And I think this is more of a, and this is very much a, a software question, maybe less so for our consumer things, you know, our consumer apps we might use on our phones or things we pick up word or mouth uh, because the enterprise software tends to be more complex in the kind of challenges it's solving. So it just takes time. Everyone would like it to be quicker, but that's not always the case. And a lot of times with new products, you're introducing a whole new set of skills, you know, launching analytics product or business intelligence or at the basic core reporting product, going to something that's more analytical and then going to something that's machine learning based, there's a whole new set of skills you've got to train people. And again, it all just takes some time. Yeah, I think that raises a good point. When you think of a startup, it's usually starting as one product and all the resources are allocated around that. All of the brain power, all the mind share goes to that. All product is building that. Sales only has that to sell. So they have nothing to uh, distract them from accomplishing their goals. Marketing is just purely positioning around and messaging and sales enablement and all the other marketing lead gen activities they do, but it's all for that one product. When you add another product line now, all of a sudden, and I'm not talking about just an add-on product, like a core product with a little add-on, you know, that's, that's easier or a lot easier, I think. But when you add a whole new product, now you have to worry about you know, allocation of funds for lead generation activities, mind share in the sales team, how you break out quota, right? Because you don't, if all the salespeople could still make their number and make it easier just by selling the existing stuff, well, they're probably never going to sell the new stuff. So you have all those issues, right? You're absolutely right. And I'll add on a little more. If you have a new product that fundamentally changes, that addresses a new persona, so a different group of people, now you almost have two separate companies because you have to message differently. So maybe I'm selling to an IT shop and maybe I'm selling to a business owner. I have an entirely different set of messaging, a different set of problems. And if I'm the salesperson, I may have a couple products that I'm trying to sell, but I have to reorient myself to the audience I'm about to address. So you almost have two sets of everything, web pages, websites, experiences we want people to flow through on the buyer's journey and the evaluation journey. It gets really, really hard and gets really complicated, which is why you can see, which is why you see sometimes, particularly in the mass of organizations, right? When you come in for a sales cycle, you know, a customer will bring in five people with them, right? You have the account manager and then three specialists for three different products because those three specialists only know their set of products and they, they don't necessarily know the overlap because there's just that much complexity. So having been through that, and, and a lot of people out there, especially that have been in startup organizations, have mostly been geared towards one product. Do you have any you know, pithy words of advice to give them, or maybe even not so pithy? What's the big learnings you can you know, give in the next five minutes saying, think, make sure you think about one, two, and three, or A, B, and C? Yes. So as you are expanding upon you know, beyond that core product, I recommend to everybody that they make sure very carefully as they're expanding, they continue to know who they're serving and what the problems is they're trying to solve. They need to be super clear because as they're expanding their products, one of the beautiful things about having a single product is it tends to do one or two things and it tends to do it extremely well. And the second we try to do three, four, and five things, the product becomes complicated. And if their end user doesn't have a, a lot of sophistication, 
suddenly people start rejecting things. So they need to be very careful and very clear on who they're going after and what problems they're solving because the first thing you want to do is start throwing a bunch of new features or capabilities in a product because it just clutters it up, which is why I think you continue to see people using what I call kind of single source products. You know, our phones are probably the simplest example. You know, my app, each app kind of does one thing. And I'm actually perfectly happy having 24 apps do one thing versus having the all-encompassing app that does 24 things for me because it's just too hard. So I would say keep your focus straight. I'm not saying don't go into different markets or not to address different people or buyers. Just understand carefully what you're doing and what you're walking to. And we see that that is super common. I would say that I've made that mistake in my life, (laughs) maybe more than once. And I think a lot of companies have as they try to expand either by the demand that the businesses are putting upon them or the investors are putting upon them to try and drive revenue. It's natural to expand. And they put a lot of people and great minds and thinkers onto it. But then they develop a lot of downstream organizational and operational complexity that takes a while to resolve, if it ever actually gets resolved. So just be very clear, going back to my pithy words, be very clear about who you're serving and what problems you're trying to solve and consider all the downstream alignment and organizational and operational needs in order to support that. And don't discount how much that is. I think that's great advice. So your experience a ton with business intelligence, analytics. Talk to me a little bit about how that industry has changed and where it's headed now. So if I think back somewhat of a, I don't want to be too much of an historian here. If I look back, you know, I think back to the 80s, it was great because, you know, the databases were in their prime and they were collecting all this data. And then suddenly people couldn't do anything with the data. And I think that's when the business intelligence world arrived. And it changed because now analysts, people who understood the data, could start asking questions of the data and understand why things were going on, right? And what might be the root cause of those things. And that was a tremendous value to companies because they just didn't have that insight before. And then I think uh, as I progressed into the 2000s and people started looking at their businesses differently and, you know, I think of the, uh, I think the book Competing of Analytics, which I, I know you're familiar with. I think the wake up call there for organizations was we don't need people making decisions based on intuition. We need people making decisions based on data. And it was a fundamental shift in the way companies were starting to evaluate their investments. And that's taken a long time. But as I think from, from the advent of the book, which I think might have been about 2005 to now, which has been almost a decade, I think the vast majority of organizations have made that change. And I think the smart business leaders simply don't accept tuition and experience alone as indicators of what, we, what decision we need to make. They also don't accept data alone because data out of context and data with no understanding around it doesn't make sense. People can interpret data incorrectly if they don't understand all the things happening around the business because there could have been operational changes, their contracts could have changed, their agreements with their suppliers could have changed, and the data might show something, but interpreted incorrectly, it might not make sense. So you need the two. You absolutely need the two. And where, where I think we are today is people consciously or subconsciously are making decisions with data. And, and when it's not present, they know it. And so I'm being a little bit vague, but as I think about some of the apps 
I use, I'm sure you use them too, you know, use travel apps. Travel apps are great now, right? You can filter your results. You can look at probability whether your flight's going to land on time, right? You can... It's you, usually kind of low. It, right. Or at <laughs> least lower than I expect. And you can use, you can get reviews and ratings and people look and people look at the you know, multi-star ratings for things and people start getting, you know, they start using descriptive analytics and don't even realize it, right? Look, okay, I've got an average rating. And then you go to the histogram and you can see you're looking for a certain profile and shape on that histogram, right? When you're trying to buy something, if there's a decent number of fours or fives, that's good. If it's per bell curve at three, eh, not so much. If it's too many fives, you know, it's a lie, right? People are just, people are just faking the ratings. So there's enough in the, in the laws of large numbers when you look at that distribution, that means something to people. And what's interesting is most people don't look at that and say, oh, gosh, I can't make a purchase without my histogram. They, they never say that, right? They just say, well, I got to look at the ratings and see if it seems real. Like, so they don't even think necessarily in the mathematical terms, but they understand it when they see it. And now people are, I think, programmed to have that information. When they don't have that information, they demand that information. And if they don't get it, they move on, frankly. Any application without analytics in it, I think, frankly, you know, risks extinction. It just won't be there. So every application is using it, whether it's front and center or using it to drive some other process in the application. Uh, it's absolutely there. And I think you're going to continue to, to see that trend. I had, um, there used to be an old adage, which, you know, we'll remember, which is the old advertising executives back in, I guess, the 60s would say, I know half my ad budget is wasted. I just don't know which half, right? Because there was no way to measure it, at least not measure it without spending tens of thousands of dollars. Now I'd argue that the correct statement is, if you can't measure it, you don't get budget for it. Kind of end of story. And that's not to say that we don't do awareness-based things that we know are good for the organization. But I would say probably most organizations spend 60 to 70% of their budget on things that can be measured. Like everything can be tracked. And conscious decisions on that. Even if you are doing awareness things, you know that this this budget's going to be the harder part to track. That's absolutely right. And and the smart companies are interpolating, you know, they can see the downstream effects. So if I start running more awareness campaigns, usually in depending on depending on what you're offering, right? In weeks to months afterward, you can see the effect. And then as you drop off that awareness investment, you can then see the yeah. effect again. So you can get some you can get some inferences. Organic traffic lift on your website, for instance, that's, right? That, or that's right. There are definitely there are definitely ways to do it, but this is the way everyone's thinking. And what's also nice with analytics is you can run experiments far faster, right? You can, whether it's through your advertising or you know your organic word search or whatever it is you're doing, you can run experiments, you can run A B testing on experience, you can run them quick, you can react quickly, you can double down. And then what's also going to be true is everyone else is going to do the same thing too. And you might get three, six, maybe 12 months out of it. And then you got to move on because then it's not going to work anymore. You know, the marketing portion of our lives is becoming as much science as art. And uh, it's, it's pretty fascinating, frankly. Yeah, I do think it's fascinating. You mentioned one thing in that answer that I want to go back to, which is we talk about being data driven. And, and by that, we mean you know, having, wanting to get data, having data, using that as a basis for decisions. But you also mentioned, and I think it's important, as, as we do too, is that data is not what makes your decisions. It's how you look at the data. And so some people talk about it being inspired by data. We like to use, you know, driven by data. Talk to me a little bit about that and how people can 
over rely on data a little bit too much. And I don't mean that by saying they should have less data. I just mean that by spending the amount of time actually analyzing what the data means. Yeah, no, a complete agreement with you. You know, when we get together for meetings, but I think I shouldn't use I shouldn't use logic, but in general, what I would recommend is when people have discussions about a topic, they usually will use data to support or refute right their their hypothesis, which is great. The smart organizations are bringing in data and they're looking at the data and they're looking at the conclusions and then they're asking themselves questions like, where did the data come from? What is the time period? How did you slice it? What are you looking at? And what they're applying to that is the business knowledge around the data. No one should trust blindly kind of the analytics. That, that's not true in every case. And every company has tens to dozens of metrics, right, that they operate on that we know is core to the business. And those tend to be true. But when you're looking at one, you know, we're looking at specific problems, you're digging into it. There's a lot of questions that need to be asked. It's always around the assumptions. You need to ask those questions. But a data, to your point, data-driven, right? It's, it's where you start the discussion. You can have a far more meaningful discussion because it might say, well, we can believe or we don't believe the results. Okay, what more information do we need to go get? How long will it take us to gather it? What is a hypothesis we're going to test when we go after this? And so, you know, the output of these magical analytics aren't just assumed to be correct. They form a point at which we need to apply our logic and judgment, which I, th and I think when you bring the two together is when you get the right mix that really helps push the, co the company forward in whatever initiative they're going after. So let's talk about embedded analytics for a second, you know, where, what you're currently working on. What should product managers understand about embedded analytics? Yeah, so going back to something I said earlier, analytics shouldn't be an afterthought. It should be, particularly if you're starting a new offering, it should be in the front of your mind. And when I think about embedded analytics, analytics shouldn't be a separate area you go to or an escape button or an export button where you go somewhere else, right? It should be woven into the fabric of the application. When we talk with product managers and we ask them whether intellectual property is, almost always at some point they'll say, it's partially in our user experience. What do people see? When did they see it? And how do they encounter the information along the way? And we think of embedded analytics, it needs to be part of that user experience. It needs to flow with your application. And if you are thinking about analytics as an afterthought, it might be a tab on a screen or a, you know, a report that you receive in PDF later, and that doesn't make sense. It needs to be in context of what your end users are experiencing, and then you'll start benefiting from the full power of analytics. One of the reasons I jumped into the embedded analytics experience is even in kind of the business intelligence experience, I would argue that the market was at saturation, and that's not to say that 100% of people used analytics every day, what it is to say is the people who needed those tools had them or can get them, right, with, without a lot of difficulty. But what's nice about embedded analytics is it touches all of us. It can, you know, you don't have to be sophisticated. You can be all the way out at the front line of individuals who are dealing with customers who can get the analytics. They understand their business. They understand their, you know, their slice of the business and how to use the information to make decisions. And that's what's nice because it's presented again in their application where they do their, their work, where they spend most of their day. 
So as I think about product managers, I would say, first of all, make sure analytics is not an afterthought. It's part of your core offering. And then make it part of your core offering. Think about the user experience because that's going to be critical. The, the second part of that, which people often forget, is you have an application, you have infrastructure, you have security, you have data. Make sure when you're impending analytics that it works with all of that. It doesn't require another security scheme or a specific data model because then you are essentially maintaining separate products with separate expertise, which could be proprietary or not. So think about all those other pieces to that application because if your application doesn't scale elastic, you know, elastically or horizontally or it doesn't manage multi-tenant security well, then you're going to inhibit the adoption of your application. So just think of those two things, kind of the, the things that you see first, or your customers will see, and then the hidden things that your, your DevOps team or your ops team are going to run into that could prohibit the success of your application. So another area that's kind of interesting, which you've experienced in is, is predictive, right? Mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit about predictive analytics for product managers. How should they think about it? Yeah, we run into this a lot. And I tell people the first thing every time which is figure out what your business problem is before you jump into predictive. And what I mean by that is there's a lot, you know, machine learning, AI, deep learning, it's all very topical right now, very buzzworthy right now. Don't get enamored with kind of the shiny pimple syndrome, which is I see this thing, therefore I need to go have it. Or your executive manager reads somewhere in their business publications that they need predictive and send down a mandate. Don't ever use it. You know, we tell us all the product managers all the time, don't ever use technology for the sake of technology. Figure out what business problem you want to solve, first and foremost. Figure out what the business value is going to be. Then determine if predictive will help get you there. And what that will do is focus you in on all of the nitty gritty that needs to be done. Do I have the right data? You know, do I have the right data with predictive indicators in it that will get me the answers I need? Do I need to go get more data? When I look at that data now, is it ready for predictive algorithms, right? Do I have missing data? Do I have sparse data? Do I need to clean these things up? Once you understand the problem, and then you go to see if you have the data, actually creating the models and running them are not so difficult, right? You can create the models. You can test the models. You can see how well they predict. You can use the models to predict future outcomes that, you know, even how well the models will predict. But if you don't start with the business problem, you just start putting in predictive analytics, the first thing people are going to ask is, what, what do I do with this? Versus if I have a customer churn problem and I can identify that people are likely to churn, oh, okay, I know how to work with that. And if you can predict those people and you can say, here are campaigns you can run, or if someone calls you up, here's options you have for you based on this user's profile and his or her's past behavior, it's most likely that this type of campaign will be more effective than another. Now I'm using the predictive analytics and it makes far more sense to me because it's in the proper context of a business as opposed to here's some more information. We're not sure how, what you're going to do with it. That, and that's all the time. That is the advice we give people. So product managers already have a lot on their plate. Do you think they have the experience right now to jump into predictive? Do you think they understand enough about the value of embedded analytics for their business? I think the answer, the answer to that is yes. As you're going through, the reason for product managers is they're going to be judged on success a couple different ways. 
right? They're going to be judged success, you know, ultimately if it's a commercial product on are you generating revenue, right? Uh, if it's a commercial product, how do you differentiate yourself? So you're going to judge yourself on market share, depending on what phase you are in your life cycle. And predictive is a way to do both. And again, it goes back to solving business problems. But if you add predictive analytics that reduces customer churn and some models we've run for customers, you know, 1%, that can translate literally into millions of dollars. That right then and there is a product that would pay for itself. A lot of times with predictive, people can create different tiers of the offering, right? You see a lot, you know, you have tier one, tier two, tier three, there's different capabilities in those tiers. Predictive is one that you generally can charge more for. And we've seen that play out a number of times. And if not, predictive is a capability that helps differentiate you and keeps your competitor's market share down because your product has more capabilities. So you asked me the question of whether they have the skills or not. I would flip it around and say, I think the market demands that they're going to have to do that. I think that's a good way to think about it. So for those that don't have a lot of experience either with embedded analytics or predictive analytics, what advice would you give them to getting up to speed quickly? Yeah, so the th first thing I would do is tell people not to be intimidated, right? right? It's, it's actually not that hard on the embedded analytics front. And on the predictive front, again, don't get overwhelmed. There's a, there's a lot of information stirring out in the market. And I would say start simple, which is you know, advice we hear all the time from going back to our education days, right? Identify a problem and work through what's required to, to get to that answer. There are fortunately, uh, predictive is not what it was back in the days of SaaS with proprietary models, proprietary coding capabilities, proprietary workbenches. It's not like that. Frankly, some of the best models out there are all open sourced. I'm sorry, not models. The best algorithms out there are actually open sourced. There's even services that allow you to do that. Most of the model creation, certainly the way we've moved as well, is make the, take the model creation out of the hands of data scientists or generally those with a lot of specialized expertise and make it simpler, more approachable for application teams that are building pieces. And, and I think you're seeing a lot of that happen right now. You know, we, uh, you know, Logi as an example has gone to, you know, kind of a no code model creation, which is as simple as following a wizard, identify your data based on certain types of problems and choose the defaults and run your model. And you can build a model in a matter of as long as it takes to train it. You know, depending on your data and size, that can take some time. But then you can build the second model, the third model, and you can tune it for accuracy. So you simplify it, and then you give people the knobs to turn to see how well, you know, if the accuracy is 70%, 90%, 95%, okay, well, then I can add, I can add more trees. If it's a random forest, I can change the way I prepare the data. I can change the number of rows it trains on. All those things that are somewhat simple but couched in business outcomes rather than technological sophistication that most of us don't have. And frankly, you know, even when you talk to the data scientists, they're just as happy to get this as well because, because their backlog requests are so long that they can, never, they can never work it down either. So I would tell people it's you just need to get started. You know, even as I started, you can find books all the names of which escape me right now, <laughs> sorry, that start really kind of working at the business and working through the data and working through the algorithms, which is a nice progression just to think about how to get going. Because it does take a little work 
but the payoffs are almost always worth it. So let's talk about other trends you see in product management. Anything that you think product managers should say, oh, I, I should learn more about that? That's interesting. You know, product managers, we do so many different things. I think certainly anything machine learning, AI related, I think people should be looking into. But again, with the business problems, I think they need to solve. I'd say that's probably the, the big one to date. I think the other things people need to think about a lot are around security. The deployments people have are getting increasingly complex. Data lives in various places. Your applications might live in various places. Being able to elastically scale, spin things up, spin things down as needed, being able to track where all that information is going, being able to make sure that users have the appropriate access and authorization to information can get fairly complex. You roll in GDPR, GDPR requirements from Europe, and I'm sure we'll have something similar you know, in the not too distant future. We need to keep track of all those things, depending on your applications use data to make sure that not only you're in compliance, it's kind of like the regulatory thing to do, but to do it because it's the right thing for the customers. I think you're seeing more awareness on the customer side about their data, how people are using data, how people are using their data and what it means. And people are slowly becoming more conscious of what's going on and are demanding more information. I use, use my children. The younger generations have been educated pretty well, I'd say, in the last five to five to eight years, particularly with the use of social media. They're getting far more sophisticated. They're avoiding places that they, that they know they shouldn't go by actively not using apps or not sharing things or making sure that their circle of trust, so to speak, is, is pretty tight. And you're going to see that as they filter through the universities and into, into the professional world, they're going to have a certain set of demands. And the companies that offer them an experience where they know they respect their data, I think will start winning out more and more. You know, I think it'd be interesting. I don't have the data. You know, Facebook usage, I think, tends to be for people in their late 30s and 40s see very few teenagers using those kind of applications. They're using very different things. So the market's, the market's been moving now for five, six years. It's yeah. going to intensify. A lot, of, a lot of Instagram, which happens to be owned by Facebook. Right? Yeah. And uh, I think Instagram passed Snapchat, but that was the other one as yeah, far as Snapchat. usage. Yeah. Yep. So let's turn to you a little bit. Talk to me about your favorite products and why they're your favorite. <laughs> it's a great question. I have to think about what makes my favorite product a favorite product. And I thought my, my current favorite product, maybe it's more of a feature than a product. I'll tell you what it is. I bought a car three years ago and it has keyless entry that's proximity based, right? So my keys in my backpack, I walk up to the car, the car unlocks. When I was evaluating the car to buy the car and cars are by far away, let me state, not my favorite product necessary but not my favorite product and i had a list of criteria this wasn't on it right this was just unnecessary very low weighting factor i love the keyless entry on my car it is my favorite thing and the reason i think this is my favorite product is it identified a need that i didn't know i had so it kind of goes back to the the old steve jobs thing which is you know i can't i'm trying to find products that people don't even know they need yet that was that product for me. I use it every day. Every time I walk to my car, it's usually a combination of a backpack and you know, a, a beverage. I don't have free hands. And every day that I use it, 
I'm happy I use it. And here's how I know it's my favorite product. When I have to buy a car in the future, I'm probably going to be willing to spend an extra $3,000 because this, this capability is only, you know, in some ridiculous package that you don't really need in your vehicle. But because I use it every day, it has that much economic delta to me that I, I have to think to myself, I didn't even know I needed it. Now I'm absolutely addicted to it. I'm an advocate for it. I'm talking about it now. It's somewhat ridiculous. Like this has to be my favorite product. And, you know, and, and maybe the electrical engineer me likes the combination of the software and the hardware and the sensors and everything else that's going on. So maybe I get a little nerdy that direction. But if I can find products or people have products where, you know, they use them every day and they, they can't imagine life without them. That's kind of how I feel about it right now. When I have to drive my wife's car and I walk up to the door and it doesn't open, I'm angry. I actually get angry <laughs> for, for like 10 seconds. I get angry. And if I don't catch myself, you know, words will start coming out of my mouth. that shouldn't be there. And um, like, my gosh, I you know, have no idea how this changed. I like it. I, you don't leave the car on and walk away with your keys, do you? No, but you can. But after 10 minutes, it turns itself off. Oh, does it? <laughs> yeah. Does it? <laughs> so there's there's logic. There's logic. That's good there's because logic I think quite a few of the cars out there don't turn themselves off, and it turns the engine off, and then you can't hear that the car is on, and you just walk away, and it's still it's still running a little bit. Yeah, that actually reminds me back to my energy days. We we wrote a lot of the logic. We wrote a lot of the control logic just for those things, and you know the the smarter ones have figured that out. So yeah, if, if it doesn't sense the key in proximity to a certain period of time, then it will turn itself off. It would be, that's a good feature. It <laughs> should be in every one of those feature. cars. So a final question today. Three words to describe yourself. Creative, pragmatic, and curious. Awesome. Well, that was great. It's awesome having you here today. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people. <laughs>